Well, let me give you a premise statement as we start our time. The premise statement would be this. Transformation requires movement. Transformation requires movement. And in order for movement to take place, there must be tension. What I'm saying is this. I must leave what is and what was if I will ever embrace what can be. I've got to leave what is and what was if I'm ever going to embrace what can be. I've established with you over the years that the man I used to be and the man I dreamed I would be will oftentimes compete with the man that God desires me to be. And so I have to look and go, am I okay staying where I am? Is the normal and the familiar and the routine, am I okay with it? Because God calls me to live by faith and to take risk and to step out into the unknown and the unfamiliar and trust him. I must leave here if I'm ever going to get there in my faith journey. It's been said that the key to vision is getting people to move from here to there. You've got to tell them what here looks like, but in order to move from here to there, you've got to tell them what there looks like. And part of what we've been doing over the last weeks here at the cross is casting vision of who we are as a fellowship and where God is leading us. So we talked last week that our desire and prayer for every person that walks in the doors and on this campus that would worship with us on Sunday morning, our heart's prayer and cry out to God is this. If you come in here somewhat confused or just concerned about life and you're looking for answers, our prayer is that you can move from being just confused and just concerned about life to a place of where you really experience conversion, where you meet Christ and he starts to do a supernatural work in your life. We desire to see people move just from conversion. Oh, so many people in the Bible belt, the bondage belt, have prayed prayers and walked aisles, but they don't have any spiritual root system and depth in them. So we desire to see every person here understand the importance of moving from conversion to commitment, opening up that next chapter where you start to trust God and embrace his truths. And then as you become committed, we want to see every person connected. We believe your story matters and life is done in circles and not in rows. And we believe in connectivity so that you're able to do life amongst the body of Christ. And then we believe that next chapter is where you start to become a contributing member of the body of Christ, where you realize that the resources you have, your time, your talents, and your treasures, God is desiring to use them for his glory. We believe that every person sitting in here today is going to experience movement at some level. We believe God is wanting to transform your story. God don't want you to stay here. He wants to take you there. But in order to go there, it's going to require a step of faith and some risk on your part. Now, a little over two and a half years ago, we changed the name of our church. People ask me, why did y'all change the name of the church? Because we had to go from here to there. There's a Latin phrase, nomen est omen, and it declares this. Your name is your destiny. Your name is your destiny. The old name is what was, but it's not what is, and it's not what's going to be. The old name, Oasis, was a place where people could kind of camp out and refresh because they were tired. What we changed the name of and what we changed the name to is much more weighty, and I'll break that down for you today. But when God changed the name of a person, it was all about a new mission and a new vision and a new direction. It was an entire new identity. 
So if you study the Old Testament, one of my favorite characters would be the guy uh, named Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, but Jacob's name meant deceiver and conniver. Go back and read the earlier pages of Genesis. And so God looks at him one day and says, I'm going to change your name because no man has stolen. Your name is your destiny. And he changed his name to Israel. The name Israel means one who will wrestle and struggle with God, but yet will prevail. So your name's going to be Israel. So even today, many of us, as we look back over history and we find that little place over there in the Middle East, Israel, the center pretty much of the world, we go, where did that name come from? God had to give a man a new name and a new direction and a new vision. That's what happened. There was, there was this guy by the name of Saul. He was an antagonist. He was a persecutor. He was absolutely disrupting the church. As my brother said, he was kind of a, a terrorist, if you will, against Christians. And Saul has this amazing encounter with God on the Damascus Road, and God goes, I got to change your name. Uh, Saul means admired and requested. I got to change your name. He was named after 1 Samuel 8, the first king of the Old Testament, Saul. And God goes, I'm changing your name to Paul. You're no longer going to be known as requested and admired. I'm going to change your name to small and little one so that I can do something with you. So God is all about uh, changing our name, if you will, changing our identity. Now, why the name the cross? Jog with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 17, the apostle Paul writing to this carnal, chaotic, confused church in Corinth, he spent a lot of time trying to correct them and help them with their theology and direction and purpose in life. We find right out of the gate, oh, as Paul writes to those believers this statement. Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. God did not send me to baptize. John the Baptist was baptized. And listen, listen. But God sent me to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross would be made void. It's not about how well I can enunciate and pronounce every phrase, Paul said. It's not about that. It was not cleverness of speech. It was all anchored on how powerful this gospel of Jesus is, the cross. He goes on to say, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross, the word of the cross to those perishing, it's foolish. It's foolishness. It's crazy. But to those being saved, it's God's power unto salvation. Paul declared that he had been sent for one purpose. He had been sent for the purpose of preaching the cross and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, strap your seatbelt on. It's going to get a little heavy in here. Now, proclaiming the cross was his mission. I believe that all that come after Paul are to proclaim as the central focus of their life, the gospel of Jesus and the cross. I believe that the cross is the most powerful symbol known to man. Now, in our society, the message of the cross has become somewhat trivialized. We see people oftentimes, they'll wear it around their neck. They've got this little good luck charm. If I wear this when I'm playing the sporting event and, and rub it a few times, maybe I can score more points, hit a home run, or do something in life. The, tr the cross has become trivialized somewhat in our society. 
So when you look at the weightiness of the cross and the power of the gospel, it's become almost just a generic story. It's lost its effectiveness. We live in a church age, just listen to me, I'm not dogging others, I'm just telling you who we are, but we're more apt to come up with a subdivision name to name who we are than something biblical. Now, 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 now God was weighing on our hearts and really driving the stake in the hearts of Nick and Mike and Steve and our team way back to say, no, 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 I want a strong name to be who you are in Loganville and beyond the cross. I want you to think about this. The message of the resurrection, it's a lot easier to digest. When we get to that Easter season and we think about the power of the resurrection, the message of the resurrection is easier to digest because we look at that and we go, that's a cool story. It's about a dead man coming back to life. How cool. But the message of the cross is very disturbing. It's very insulting because it's about an alive man becoming dead. And when you study the gruesome details and the brutality of what Jesus went through as he was murdered, it's disturbing because we know we had something to do with it. The, the, the cross confronts us. The cross troubles us because when we look at this amazing event that took place some 2,000 years ago and the brutality of what Jesus went through, I have to sit back and go, why did he do it? He did it to appease the wrath of the Father once and for all. He did it to die for sin once and for all. He did it to deal with the sin debt of humanity once and for all. I contributed to that. So the message of the cross is a bloody, staggering message. It really is, but I want to move. I want you to think about this. Back to verse 18. It says, the word of the cross to those perishing, it's foolishness. It, it, it is the same Greek word of where we get the English word moron. When you study that word and the weightiness of the context there, what he's saying is the word of the cross, it's insane, it's ignorant, it's almost moronic that you would believe something like that. And that's what Paul is saying. For the word of the cross to those who are perishing, dying in their sin, who want to just live for themselves and live it up for the moment, do you realize this message that I preach and proclaim is moronic, it's, it's foolish, it doesn't make any sense. I like how Isaiah captured this in his prophetic vision in chapter 53 as he would talk about the suffering servant of Christ. He goes, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. Isaiah talks about this suffering servant that by his stripes we would be healed. As a lamb led before the shearers, he opened not his mouth. And Isaiah says, do you realize that he was despised and rejected by those that he had created and made in his image? The lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world? So, I want to dive in just briefly and just kind of capture the cross and, and, and look at it. But I will tell you, and I will tell you, and I will tell you that I can't comprehend 
the pain of what Jesus went through those six hours that Friday as he was crucified. If you study the scripture in Matthew 26, you see Jesus being led to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus goes there with his disciples. And while he's there, he, he, he's crying out to God. He, he knows what's before him at Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. It's where they would take these olives and they would smash them down and they would crush them down and, and they would get the oil and that's where olive oil would come from. So Jesus goes to this place of crushing and he's praying there. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. If there's any other way to accomplish this, your will be done. My will be gone. It's one of the most powerful statements to me as I encounter this whole narrative of Jesus walking this Via Della Rosa there at this place of Gethsemane. So, so why the cross, Tim? Why the cross? Because we believe that this must be a place of crushing, where God had to crush us and empty us of us so that we could meet him, a place that we would have to die to us if we were ever going to live for him. So Jesus is taken to Gethsemane, and the Bible says he sweats these drops of blood, and he's in such anguish. Then he's arrested and he's taken to a place called Gabbatha. Gabbatha, John chapter 19, is a place of stony pavement. And there was a lot of hard, stony, calloused hearts there that day. But as Jesus is led to Gabbatha, it's there that he suffers incredible humiliation and, and absolute torture, if you will. John 19 says that Pilate had Jesus scourged. That word scourge is a quick word to read past, but when you think about the gruesome reality of the cross, scourge meant that they would tie you on a whipping post and they would have one guy about eight feet on the right and one on the left and they had this whip with pieces of metal and glass and chunks of steel and they would take turns popping you while the leather and the glass and the metal went around you, and then they would yank back and they would just tear your body to shreds. 39 lashes. Many scholars believe that Jesus was in such a pre-shock state. His body was weary. His body was draining of blood, of the essence of life, the brutality that he had gone through. Now, now he, he, he didn't do anything wrong. He'd done nothing bad. He was God in flesh. He, he was perfect. He had healed people and fed people and all these amazing things. But he hangs there tied to this post being shredded. So, so they lead him from this place called Gabbatha, Stony Pavement, and they take him over to this place called the Garrison Room. The garrison room is where these soldiers now began to mock him and jeer him and curse him and spat upon him. And they take this crown of thorns with two to four inch thorns that they had woven together. And they take this crown and they sit it down on his head and they take these wooden sticks and they began to beat this crown through the brow of the Savior and blood is pouring, and he's already lacerated and just totally shredded. And they mock him, and they laugh at him, and they ridicule him. And he's exhausted. 
This is the Lamb of God. This is God in flesh. And so then he's led from this garrison room to a place called Golgotha. Golgotha means place of the skull. This is a nasty place where criminals would be crucified on these wooden beams. And as you study what happened with Jesus, they said that the cross during that day would weigh about 300 pounds. And it was so heavy that he couldn't hardly carry it by himself. And he drags alone the Lamb of God, the perfect God, the Redeemer of the world, the one that shepherds showed up to see, the one that angels sang about, the one that said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Not a whole lot of peace going on. And then he's led to Golgotha. And there is where Jesus is crucified on this cross. The brutality of the narrative story. Five to seven inch spikes were driven through the wrist, not the hand, but through the wrist. There's these nerve endings here, and once that spike would penetrate these nerve nerve endings, they said that the fiery pain that would be released in the body, they, they, they didn't even know how to capture it. They didn't even know what to say about it. There was no word to capture the pain and the brutality, so they came up with a word called excrucius. And the word excrucius means out of the cross, literal definition of the word. We, we say excruciating, and I'm looking going, why? The innocent was treated as guilty. Perfection was punctured. The creator of the world was regarded as a criminal, Agape was arrested, assassinated, and tortured. Why, Tim? Why the cross? Why not some happy word? Why not something a little lighter? Because when we hear about the details of the death of Christ, it is so disturbing, but it's so hopeful. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, one of those last statements that he would echo would be, it is finished. Everything that the Father has required for atonement to take place, for redemption to take place, for salvation to take place, it has been accomplished. Jesus didn't say, I've done my part. Now you go do yours. Everything that would make me righteous, everything that the Father required to bring about hope and deliverance and direction and perspective, it is finished. I mean, I'm sure that demons in hell were throwing a party. We killed him, he's done. But he never said, I am finished. Because he would bust through the grave on the third day. He would be raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. He would conquer death, hell, and the grave once and for all. He just said, it is finished. Everything that would be required for you and I to get right with the Father was accomplished. Why the cross? Why the cross? Because it's a message of hope and salvation. 
It's a statement of God's love to the world. It is the most powerful symbol that we will ever, ever, ever see. The message of the cross is not stop sinning. It's not you can do better. It's not you're not reading enough. You're not giving enough. You're not sharing enough. No, the message of the cross is I am enough. I'm enough. So when he bows his head and he gives up the spirit, everything the father required, that you and I could have purpose and meaning and direction and hope, everything the father had asked to reconcile us. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's the message of the cross. So why? The cross. Because we believe the cross is humanity's only hope. Again, there is no life, there is no peace, there is no purpose apart from the cross. It declares forgiveness and redemption and atonement once and for all. The cross. It is finished. So Paul would write in Galatians chapter 6, and he would say this. God forbid that I should ever boast about anything except the cross of Christ. God forbid that I should leverage my resume, my credentials, my pedigree. God forbid that I should ever declare anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Let's pray. 